Welcome to Church 213. The book of James is a powerful blueprint for authentic and relational faith. Written by the brother of Christ, this unique letter challenges the minds and hearts of a church at its best. Journey with us through this book for the rest of 2023. Thanks for listening. One of, uh, one of the things that Debbie and I had to learn how to negotiate as a young couple, um, especially when we started having children, was, are we going to wrap or are we going to unwrap? And what I mean by that is, you know, we're raised different. That's one of the things about merging a family is you take all of your traditions and you merge those with the traditions of, of your spouse and those two come together. And uh, sometimes it may lend itself to intense fellowship. But we had to work through those things. See, when I was a kid, um, we, we were unwrapped people. Meaning on Christmas morning, we would walk in and, uh, and everything would be unwrapped under the tree. And, and it was just like, just the wonder of it all. Like you just couldn't look fast enough. And, and, I, and we, that's a lot of sweet memories. For Debbie, everything was wrapped. And so what they would do is they would sit around and they would, they would unwrap presents one at a time as they went around different family members to try to soak in the moment. And, um, and so that was, that was, that was how they, they made those sweet, uh, sweet memories. And so needless to say, I really tried my case for the, for the unwrapped technique. But um, happy wife, happy house. Happy spouse, happy house. Happy, happy wife, happy life. There we go. I like to say, I like to say happy dude, good mood. But, but it is what it is. It is what it is. And so, um, and so I lost. And so, so, so we wrap our gifts, and she's totally right. It's just it's special to make those memories. But when you think about wrapping, the reason I tried to make my case is, is one, of the, you know, one of the things hard to, to grasp about Christmas is the whole wrapping presents thing. The reality is, is this. I'm not going to pay somebody to wrap my gifts. Just like I'm not going to pay for somebody to scare me. If you're like, hey, pastor, I want to take you to a haunted house. I'll pay your way. No! I'm not going to pay somebody to scare me. And I'm not going to pay somebody to wrap my gifts. Now, now when, you, when you give a gift and it's all wrapped up, I want you to know that, that the person that, that is receiving the gift is not interested in your wrappings. I can promise you that. They may play a game. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, look at that nice paper. Oh, look at this technique. Oh, look at the tape. Oh, you know, they, they, they may play along. But let's be honest, all that stuff's about to get torn off. Are y'all with me? That, that's just the reality. Wrapping paper and all the tags and, and the bows and, and the glitter. It's just fog that, that, uh, that disguises what people are really interested in. And that's what's under the paper. And so we're launching out of that into the fourth week of our series that we launched called A Church at Its Best. And what we've been doing is we've been journeying through the book of James. Now, I've said this same thing in different ways the last three weeks, but basically, the book of James is, is critical, critical for Christians because it's a very fast-paced, practical book. It's, it's a, a blueprint. It, it tests us for an authenticity in our walk with Christ. It's like a magnifying glass for genuine salvation. And so James is a call to study our lives by the scriptures. To test if we know him correctly. So that we can live correctly. So that we can stand before him at death correctly. There is a way that seems right unto a man. But its way is to death. The mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. To think about the creation of all things and yet to have a creator who has a personal relationship, we need a form of communication. God gave us the instruction manual. It's, it's Bible. It's basic instructions before leaving earth. We talked about that last week. And so when you think about the book of James, we have to understand him correctly so we can stand before him correctly. The first three, three weeks we worked through James chapter 1, and it basically taught us this. It was a test of earthly endurance so that we can prove heavenly assurance. And so we launch out of James chapter 1, immediately into James chapter 2. So here's the thing. 
by nature, and you know it as well as I do, whether we want to admit it or not, we get all hyped up when we see someone wrapped well, don't we? Not only do we admire well-wrapped people, but if we're honest, we envy them a little bit, and we cater to well-wrapped people. We envy them, we cater them, and what I mean by well-wrapped people, this is people that just appear on the outside that they've got it all together. You know, it's those people that roll up at the family gatherings and you try to be like, I'm so glad you're here, but you're like, hmm. They're well-wrapped. People that drive well-wrapped cars. They live in well-wrapped houses. They have well-wrapped families. They live in well-wrapped neighborhoods. They work a well-wrapped job. They wear well-wrapped clothes. And they make well-wrapped money. You know what I'm saying? Are y'all picking up what I'm putting down? There's people that are like that around us. But I want you to know this. God wants to know what all that wrapping is actually covering. James chapter 2 kind of launches into that. It's that same idea that James laid out in, in chapter 1 where it talks about wealth and compassion. Endurance that leads to heavenly insurance. What I'm saying is that, well, that, that covering is just fancy fog. So what James is trying to lay out in, in James 2 is he's saying, Hey church, is it just fancy fog or is it real faith? Now if you remember from, from week 1 what James is doing, he's writing to the 12 tribes dispersed. It's just a picture of, of believers in the New Testament that were scattered all around the Mediterranean Sea. Little, little pockets of, of believers that had settled um, or had come to faith inside of major trade routes all around the Middle East. Turkey kind of in the wedge around the Mediterranean Sea. And what he's, what he's doing is, is he's, he's understanding and he's trying to teach them that, hey, you've got a purpose where you are. And where you are is there on purpose to be a light unto all nations. And so he's laying out for these believers. He's like, hey, you, you have to avoid relating to people like the unsaved Romans currently controlling the culture. It's like, if you want to be a light, you have to pierce the darkness. And so you have to live and you have to act differently than what's going on in the context. 2 Corinthians 6.17 tells us this. Therefore, come out from, un, from, from among unbelievers and separate yourselves. Say, says the Lord, don't, don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. So the call is clear. James 2 is, is making that test clear. And, and one test of our church that will allow us, and I want you to miss it, that will allow us to come out from among a confused and a chaotic culture and be different is to avoid the fog of faith family favoritism. That's the title of the message, to avoid the fog of faith family favoritism. It's a test for genuine, authentic salvation. Let's stand together. James chapter 2. We're going to be in, in, uh, in verse number 1. Which means if kind of miss the last three weeks, you can go back and boomerang back around. You can kind of catch up to what James has, has laid out in James chapter 1 as we move right into to, um, to verse 1 of chapter 2. It's the word of God for the people of God says this. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you, as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? 
Verse 8 says, Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the laws as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. So if you don't commit adultery but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You guys can be seated. We're going to unpack these 12 verses. We're going to unpack it. The fog of fate, family favoritism. Say that ten times. Say that two times. Say that one time. Been practicing that. So that's kind of where we are. That's kind of where we are. See, James is letting believers know, hey, um, you have to be very careful how you react to people that you don't know that well at your place of worship. Because the place of worship is often the location where paying attention to the wrappings shows actually what's under the hood of your heart. Often it's right here. And so what James is telling us, as a church at its best, we have to watch carefully what we bring into the worship center. A church at its best, what are some things we can hang on to? A church at its best watches what they bring into the worship center. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 again. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, and if you look on with favor, the one wearing the fine clothes, and say, hey, sit here, and yet you say to the other person, stand over there, or sit on the floor, or by my footstool. What he's doing right here is he, he wants us to keep in the forefront of our mind all week something that we might often forget. And it's this, that how we react around other people in this room, it gets translated, and it gets projected, and it gets judged by people outside of this room. This is because of the 168 hours that you have in a week, you might spend three or four in corporate worship max. And as I was thinking about this, this came to, came to mind that, that that means that it's easier to pull the culture into here than it is to pull here into the culture, just by proximity. And so we have to guard ourselves among ourselves. Because whether you really think about it or not, what you experience in the week, you bring into here. Your walk with the Lord is brought into here. Your time with the Lord is brought into here. Or your time away from the Lord or time not in prayer is also brought into here. It's, the reality is, if you feel dry in this place after Sunday service, it's probably because you were dry when you came in here. And so what we do here is we pull up and we feast at the Lord's table, but we have to have an appetite. Amen, church? We have to ask the Lord on Sunday morning, really on Sunday night, I'm going to... I'm going to go ahead and go to bed early Saturday so I can be ready to give God my best on Sunday. God, give me, a, give me a, a, a heart of an appetite to taste and see how good you are. Give me an excitement on Sunday morning. I, I get excited about being here on Sunday morning. And so what James is doing is he's addressing believers specifically when they are in the synagogue, which is just in the New Testament, is just the meeting place of believers and we know this is because he uses a Greek word that, that means a meeting place. If he were talking about uh, a, group of, a group of believers, like a body of believers, that would have been the word ekklesia. The word ekklesia is a Greek word that means a called out assembly. We are, if you're, if you're a believer, you are an ekklesia. We, we are the ekklesia, but we are not in the ekklesia. We are in a meeting place. Are y'all with me? 
This building isn't the church. We are the church, but we come together weekly to corporately lift up what God has done in our lives individually. And so what James is doing is he is addressing specifically how we are to meet and how we are to act when we're together as a test. And the reason that he's doing that is because he's trying to combat an attitude that glorified public expression of hierarchy in the culture that bread displays a favoritism in the meeting. So let me give you a little bit of Roman context because this is important for the book because this was written inside of Roman first century. See, in Roman first century, it was very difficult to move up the corporate ladder. In, in fact, it, it's not like America. It was not a land of opportunity. The conduct of your character, not the color of your skin, meant nothing. Actually, there was no ladder at all. There was no middle class. There was very little opportunity to better yourself in the eyes of the community. And so in first century economic system, you either had old money, I'm talking about royal money and land and possessions, agriculture, or you had money because you were born into a family business of prestige like a banker or a merchant, or you just had local political wealth. That was basically it. And, and that encompassed anywhere from 90 to 95% of the population all around the Roman Empire, which basically meant 5, 5% 10% max of the, of the people. The other 90 95% had no chance at changing their situation. And here's why that's important for James. Are y'all with me? Not only what you had gave you favor. But in Roman society, how you were perceived was even more important for the way people treated you. This was the ultimate, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours environment that the New Testament church was, was being developed into. See the pressure of that? Man, this was, this, was, this was difficult plowing right here. And so here's what the prosperous would do. It was a complicated web of patronage system which meant the poor were considered clients and the wealthy were benefactors. And the benefactors were expected to demonstrate their affluence by doing things for the good of others. Where would we get the word patronize? Somebody ever told you, don't patronize me, right? You don't, you don't like that feeling. Someone just lifting you up because it actually makes them look better. That was, that was a lot of that what was going on. And so in this time, it was believed... That most of, the, most of the wealth was robbed. Most people were robbed of their wealth if they, couldn't, if they were prevented from displaying it in the wrappings of life. So they had this mentality, what good is it if I can't show it off? You know anybody like that? If you don't, it's probably you. Don't be like that. Right? And you buy something, you can't wait to show it off. My goodness, I had a, 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 he's an older deacon at, a, at my other church and... Um, He's going to want to be the Lord now. But he gave me some, some magnificent wisdom on the expense of someone else. So we're standing on the front porch of the church. His name was R.T. And um, somebody rolls up in a brand new truck. Oh, man, it was nice. And he said, Pastor, he said, they're going to show it off to everybody they know in 30 minutes. And then they have to pay for it for the next 10 years. <laughs> I thought, that's a lot of wisdom right there. What good is it if I can't show it off? That was, that was kind of what was going on in the culture. And so the popular would do this. Catch it now. This is important. The popular and the affluent, they would build buildings. They would pave roads. They would dig wells. All in hopes that glory would be brought to their names. Even today in the old world, if you go to Rome, you can see old world buildings. Some of these things are 2,000 years old plus. And still to this day, there's a name played at the top of the benefactor. And what happened was this patronization started making its way into the church. And the elite wanted the church to be another, don't miss it, another own ramp that afforded them more opportunity to demonstrate their superiority over others. And James is calling this out. He's saying this has no place. This is an error. This is dangerous in the church. And so he says, brothers and sisters, 
as you hold on to the faith as an institution. There are certain things that we as believers bring into the church from the culture. Because it helps platform the gospel. It, it helps make the gospel relevant. It helps make the gospel message sticky. But he's saying there's also some worldly things that we should not hold on to. And we, there are some things in the culture that we have to leave outside. Are y'all with me? There's some things we have to, to, to stand apart from and be different. We don't even, don't even touch them because it dilutes and it distorts the message of the cross and the holiness of God. We will bring drums in here. But we're going to leave daiquiris out there. We might have screens and we might have, we might have uh, mics, but we're not going to have mini skirts. One of those things that James is saying is, hey, you got to leave that stuff out there. You got to leave that stuff to the side as you hold on to your faith is allowing the church to become a place that people use to make themselves look good in the eyes of other people. We got to leave that stuff out there. You guys write this down. The church is not a place to prostitute maintenance of social rank. It's just not. I know that's strong. And I ran that past Pastor Dom. He's like, I think you should say that. See, a church at its best, it leaves cultural prestige outside because of the dangers of using the church to maintain a position of good standing and credibility. Y'all, this is not a place to build your reputation. It's a place to build your walk with a living God. Amen? It's a, it's a place to build your family. It's a place to build or rebuild your marriage. It's a place to change the trajectory of your kids to, the, to five, six, seven generations. It is not a public relation firm. But if you're known in the gates, praise God. If you have acquired a few nice things over the years, praise the Lord. If you have a title in the community, that's impressive. To God be the glory. But the church building, our corporate gathering place, belongs to the king. I'm talking about every chair. I'm talking about every pillar. I'm talking about every post. And every possession only deserves his name on it. And so we are to throw out favoritism and be careful what we bring into worship. And so James starts to unpack this stuff. and He starts to show us some practical ways to avoid the fog of faith family favoritism. It's this, we got to look on the inside for the dough. We got to look on the inside for the dough. I'm telling you, this is preaching. I'm glad I got here this morning to hear it. We got to look on the inside for the dough. Look at verse 2. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a, wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in this good place, and yet you say to the person, the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made a distinction among yourselves and become judged with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Heirs of the kingdom. He has promised to those who love him. Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't give the rich will press you and drag you into court. Don't they, don't, don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? See, here's what James knew. He was pastoring the church in Jerusalem. He, he got it. That was the hub of Roman religious pressure and influence. That was the spot that they crucified the Lord Jesus. That was, that was the place to which the New Testament church was, was scattered and, and spread out. So he, this guy has some street cred. He understands. He knows that the church is becoming a space where the game of playing favorites was getting put on display. And so he illustrates it. He, uh, he draws this comparison. And the, and the picture that he paints right here is between two people. And it's two people that are unfamiliar to the church. And the context is they're unfamiliar to the church. 
And they get noticed by an usher. They get noticed by a greeter. And we know that this is the case, that, 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 that these guests are interested in worship because they both walk into church. They both look around for where to go. They're both looking for a seat. It's not that they are familiar with it and they're looking for their seat. They don't know where to sit. So they walk into church looking for a place to worship the living God. And they get greeted by someone at their church. What happens next is kind of off to the races. Listen, here's what we know here. Everybody has a first Sunday. We keep that in front of our mind. I, I know what it's like to walk into a church for the first time. There was a time where I walked in here for the first time. You guys scared me to death. No, I'm kidding. You walk in, it's tough, you know. It's tough to, to walk into a church environment for the first time. It can be intimidating. And here's a heart, Church 213. We're glad you are here. We really are. Because we walked where you walk. We walked through those doors for the first time. And we want to do our best to welcome you as you seek the living God. You don't accidentally stumble on the property. You drive in here. With an anticipation of today is the day the Lord has made. God, here I am. I don't know what you have for me today or what these, I don't know who I'm going to encounter. But Lord, I pray that you would do something in my life. That's hopefully your heart when you rolled in here. That you put yourself under the authority of the word. And, and does our tag team miss the mark sometimes? Maybe. Are they maybe a bit awkward or repetitive? Maybe. I, I mean, possibly. We're human, right? There's a lot of guests that are flowing through here. But our goal is excellent. It's not perfection. I want you to know that we know how you feel. Because we've been there. And like James, our heart is we want you to feel like you're friends among friends. And that is our heart. We hope you, we hope you feel like that. I love what Miss Linda Kelly says often at the desk when she meets a guest for the first time. Says, we hope you'll be back. And I'm like, well, we'll see. And she always says this, you'll be back. You'll be back. Here's my heart, church, that we may never be found guilty of the fog of fake family favoritism just based on appearances. And so what James does is he contrasts the attitude of leaders in the church toward a wealthy believer and then a guest and, and a poor believer who's a guest. See, one dude looks like Rome, the other dude smells like Rome. And they, and they both kind of roll in there and who looks important on the outside with a symbol of wealth, which is why he lays out a ring, is ushered to the best seat. Because here's why. Of what the usher thinks he might do for the church. Because that was the system. And the other guest, who didn't look like he had anything to offer the church, was kept in the back. Was kept by the usher who was kept not in the primary, in the premier seat. See, to be a church at its best, it makes no sense in God's economy to show favoritism to one believer over another just because what's external. Here's the truth of the matter. If they both have unlimited and untapped potential for the Lord. If the Lord can use some of you, He can use anybody. You know why I can say that? Because I can say the same thing. If the Lord can use me, some broken kid from Jasper County, he can use anybody. Who said amen? <laughs> I mean, think about what God can do. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He'll call you into his presence. He'll redeem you and he'll put your feet on the solid rock that changes generations when you submit to the authority of who he really is. Know Him correctly, so you can live correctly, so you can die correctly. God is still in the transformation business. And so that is the heart. There was these two guys fishing in the ocean, their small boat capsized. And as it turned over, they, they could see that there was a, there was a deserted island, and they, and they floated for three or four days, and the entire time they were in the water, one guy was freaking out. He's like, we're going to die out here. No one knows where we are. He just kept looking in the sky. Nothing a couple days went by. They finally washed up on the shore while one guy was completely 
upset, completely freaking out. The other guy was, was on the opposite end of the spectrum. He was calm as a cucumber. He never sweated the situation. And finally, Mr. Frantic couldn't take any more of Mr. Calm. He's like, how in the world can you be so calm in situations like this when it's obvious nobody knows where we are, nobody is looking for us, and we're going to die out here. And Mr. Calm simply said, listen, buddy. He said, I make six figures, and I tithe. The leaders of my church will find us. He will find us. Listen, that is, that is not our heart. Friends, what, what make you valuable to the Lord and to us isn't what you have. It's who you are as brothers and sisters bonded at the cross of Calvary. I'm telling you, if you want to lose God's hand of favor on your church, you start shaking hands with only certain types of people. And the presence of God will flee from this place. See, what favoritism does is it connects good with evil. James, he knows this, and, and I know this. It will, it will cripple and it will corrupt a church because it conforms us to the culture. What James is doing is like, you can't let what goes, goes on. You can't let that system influence this system. And we find that all throughout the New Testament. Here's some scripture for you. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2 simply says this. Therefore, since we've also, we have also such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. The picture is people watching what's going on in the world. And let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. The ecclesia, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Romans tells us this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. These are good to kind of sandwich if you're working on some memory verses. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's easy to remember the reference. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, you see how he's always talking to the called out ones, the ecclesia, of the church? In view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect. What is it? The perfect will of God. If you want to be able to run a good race with people watching you, don't look at what's going on out there. Look at what's going on right here and how that plays out in the life of the people in this group. So James condemns looking on the outside for real value. Why? Because of how it divides the ecclesia. Listen, church, if we're going to pierce the darkness, we have to be unified. One body, one mind, one fellowship, one baptism, as we see in the New Testament, Ephesians. You guys write this down. Judge carefully at church because it's usually the hidden parts of our walk that God sees and values the most. Judge carefully at church. Because it's usually the hidden parts of our walk that God sees and values the most. This is the second part of one of our core values. We have four core values. And I told you at the family celebration, we're going to be talking about these a lot. The first one is this, doctrine is our bedrock. The second core value is unity is our what? Glue. Unity is our glue. Ethics is our power. And Jesus is our king. And so that's not something that we just thought up in the office. It's from the scriptures. It's from the New Testament church. And here's what I know. Our culture is sick and it's, and it's dangerous. And the church is that hospital. What I also know is, is, is wealth makes people greedy. It makes, it makes people become self-indulgent. It has led to just about every sensual excess. And James is reminding the church that we cannot focus on the wrappings of worth as the first judge of a person. The point that James is making is, is the same point that I want you to get is 
Don't forget, he's saying that wealth is that root of most of the problems that they are experiencing in the culture. See, it's right out of the text. Look at it. It says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? It's like, hey, when, you, when you're really tempted to judge a book by its cover, don't forget that it's the cover of the book out there that's making your life so miserable. And so you can't instantly just overlook it in here if it's causing all types of problems out there. Leave that stuff outside the meeting place. Don't be starstruck by it when it walks into worship if you just battled it out in the culture all week. Are y'all with me? That's good stuff right there. In his commencement speech in 1978, Alexander Slohyzen charged this. He said that the West, by eliminating God and therefore the sense of accountability and purpose that flows from that belief, had chosen materialism, godlessness, Shallow attempts at freedom and happiness. Any attempt to return to greatness must begin with a recognition that human life and human nature are at their core spiritual. And therefore, human beings have an equal responsibility to God and to others. He's just pointing to the royal law. And so if we're going to be a church at its best, and we're going to live out that second core value of our church, we have to know Hey, we got to look on the inside for the dough. Here's something else. Look at verse 8. We have to look on the scriptures for the show. Look on the inside for the dough. Look on the scriptures for the show. Verse 8 says this. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin or are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. I was sitting right here with Macy. We were filming her baptism video. And what I've come to discover just from ministering with families and children over the years is it's good for a child to admit that they have fallen and have sinned in the presence of God. And sometimes you can, you can think it, but it, it hits different when you say it. And so the conversation was about the gospel, it was about being saved, and it was about why do you need salvation, and and I just simply asked Macy, I'm like, hey, Macy, um, have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours before? She said, yeah. And so she's giggling. And I said, what does that make you? She said, a sinner. And that's a really good Kidstown answer. I said, yeah, that's right. But more specifically, what do you call someone that takes something that's not theirs? And she says, a stealer. I'm saying, yeah, that's right. But what else? It kind of starts with a T. She's like, a thief. And I said, are you telling me that you're a thief? And her whole countenance changed. And she kind of nodded, yeah. And I said, well, can I ask you to say that? Can you say Macy's a thief? And she said, I want you to say it. <laughs> she did not want to admit it, right? And I said, Pastor Ryan is a thief. I've taken things in the past that didn't belong to me. So we're talking about you and your relationship with Christ. And, and so she, she said it, and it, it never fails. When it hits the heart, you know it. And so she was brought to a place that she understands that it was, it was the Scripture that was beginning to speak to her and to, and to show her how to, how to walk it out and, and what the Holy Spirit was, was really doing. Was really doing it was it was the fact that she understood she had sinned against a holy God. It only takes one. 
to disqualify. I love the way she said it. I didn't want to be separated. It does. It separates. It has to because he's 100% holy. But yet he's 100% just because he's 100% good. And so just one thing disqualifies us. And so what he's saying right here is you have to look upon the scriptures for the show. We have to look upon the commandments of the king to show us the attitude to demonstrate to a world in moral freefall because people are watching us. I said it last week and I'll say it, I'll say it this morning. We are to be countercultural. In God's economy, the math is just different. It, it, it does things by this, by this book, which by nature, nature, nature makes us look really out of place. It, it, that's just the way you live by the book. You're going to look really weird. But somewhere in the weirdness, there's a living hope and there's refreshment to a lost and dying soul in a world that looks at you, but yet they're looking at you. They're judging you, but yet they're wanting what you've got because it's at a spiritual level. And what James is doing, he's pointing out that you can't show your heart for worship humbly if you have a part in favoritism. We sing a song. It's called Simple Kingdom. And here are the lyrics. It says, your kingdom is simple, as simple as love. You welcome the children. You stop for the one. You, you want to see people the way Jesus does. Your kingdom is simple. Lord, teach it to us. Your kingdom is humble, as humble as death. This king is a savior who gave his last breath. So we may die daily. Our pride lay to rest. His kingdom is humble and the broken are blessed. Your kingdom is backwards. It flows in reverse. What you call a treasure, this world calls a curse. The small become great and the last become first. Your kingdom is backwards. Lord, teach it to us. As it is in your kingdom, let it be in your church. So to see people differently and to brush it off over to, or to overlook its seriousness, that's sin and it goes against the royal law. And so our attitudes in this house, what is it based on? It's just simply the grace of God. That's it. That's equally applied. And so our attitude should be built on the royal law of the king. That's what James points out. It's the royal law, which means it applies equally to everybody. Everybody is under that royal law. A royal law that tells us to love your neighbor as yourself. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Because to not do that makes you guilty of all. You miss the mark. To miss that mark is to miss the whole target. And this was such a big deal for James because he's saying showing favoritism that discriminates against the poor. He's saying it places, it places people alongside who slander the name of God. It's all the same in the eyes of a good, righteous, just king. Isaiah 29, 13 says this. The Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. And human rules direct their worship of me. There was this reporter who decided to, uh, to do an unorthodox experiment. Here's what the reporter had, had, uh, had noticed. This happened in Arizona. And so around the metropolitan area of Arizona, there was the report that people didn't want to get involved in the lives of other people, especially if something bad was happening. And so he just couldn't believe that was the case. And so what he did was, on this bright and sunny day, he took his bicycle and he, and he, and he, and he found some people that were just doing things around the park. There were people sitting and reading. They were waiting for friends. They were drinking coffee at a sidewalk cafe. And he rides his bicycle up to these strangers and he gets off and just simply asks them this. He's like, hey, will you watch my bike for me while I run a quick errand? And they're like, sure. What he, what he would do is within a couple of minutes of leaving his bike, 
he had one of his friends who they didn't know come up and act as a, as a thief and try to steal that bike to see what the reaction of the stranger would be. And there were all types of people that he did this to. He, he, uh, he, he, he found people that were women. He, he found to trust men, young and old. And He found a teenager. He found a security guard. found some guys playing basketball in the park. And, and then he, he ended up even trying to, um, to trust a homeless couple who was resting in the park with their dog on a blanket. And here's what he found. That all watched the thief right away with the bike and didn't get involved except the homeless couple. And he couldn't believe it. See, here's the thing about this homeless couple. The lady, her face was, was just weary. Her, her skin was worn by just living on the streets. The man wore these dirty t-shirts and all these ripped up jeans. And after this experiment, the reporter walks up to this couple and, uh, and he, was, he told them, he said, I'm, I'm surprised and I want you to know that I'm even a little bit shameful because I didn't expect you to do what you did. I had no idea that, that you would be so quick and valiantly protect my property. And when he interviewed them, the wife said, we're honest and we're trustworthy people. This is how we've been raised. That's who we are on the inside. We don't have to have material wealth to have worth. And this report, it, it just it went out and it just challenged the people. And so the question for us this morning is, is, is if they walked into this place, would there be an equal ground of our worship? I don't think there would be. Because I see the way we welcome guests and I see the way that we corporately worship and, and we love one another. I don't, but, I, but that's not the case in every place. That may, be, that may not be the case in your home. That may not be the case in where you work. But I'm telling you, this may be the meeting place. But if you were with other believers outside of this place, you were to still maintain that kind of same expectation, right, out there. What we do out there matters. How we show favoritism to brothers and sisters, it matters in this place and out of this place. And that's the point, that, that God sees us all the same. Sinners Saved by grace, the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. That got the Romans' attention. And I'm going to tell you, it got the Romans' attention then, and it will get people's attention now. It still gets attention. Living according to biblical standards still gets people's attention. So by living as travelers through this world, what are we? Y'all, we're a compass. We're a compass. So we have to be careful in every single area. There's no sin that doesn't have consequences. The beautiful thing we see in the scriptures, God doesn't excuse our sin. He, he does forgive us, but there's always lasting effect. And so we have to be careful how we walk. So we can't say, well, I mean... I can show favoritism, ain't a big deal, as long as I don't do the other biggies. What God is saying is it's all equal under the royal law. And so we have expectations. And so when we are together singing and we're together giving and serving and praying, I pray that it's from a place of firm footing for all of us. Write this last thing down. What do we take away? At church, there should be a good seat available no matter our past or our possessions or our profession because it's always level ground at the foot of the cross. Let's stand together. Let's read this together. The last point. Are you ready? At church, there should be a good seat available, no matter our past, possessions, or profession, because it's always level ground at the foot of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for that level ground this morning. Father, as we have one opportunity this afternoon
just to give you praise and sing out your goodness, to proclaim gratitude from, from a place of equal forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we would use that to our hearts to cause us to look left and right differently. Father, I thank you for the level ground that I found myself at at the foot of the cross. Father, as, as a unified body of believers, may we only look in one direction when we're bowed there at the foot of your Son, and that's the possession of vertical worship. And God, that our hearts may be focused vertically and that would completely change how we look horizontally. God, that's how we impact the culture. That's how we live different. That's how we operate and we live set apart. We don't see the wrappings and the trimmings and the bows and the glitter. But we take time to get to know people. To do life with people. Not to be so pragmatic and go through the motions, but we walk slowly through the crowd. That person that's on the side of the road or the grocery store line, the gas station. God, that you would help us see people the way you do. Once broken, but saved. Blind, but now with sight. Lame, but now redeemed. As we move into the Christmas season, we would fix our eyes on you, Lord, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that would cause us to be on mission a little differently. Lord, help us to go out and be a bringer. Bring people, no matter what they look like, no matter where they've been, what they have or what they don't have, Lord. Help us to hit the heart of people because... That's where transformation starts. Not being conformed by the ways of this world, by the renewing of the mind so that we can live holy sacrifices. This is our reasonable service. God, I thank you, Lord, for the way that you convicted and led and inspired James to write almost 2,000 years ago for a time such as this. God, you're so good. You're so good. Seeing everything that we do. Seeing all of reality in one glimpse because you're outside of time and space. Yet your word is so good to us because it gives us the blueprint so we can test ourselves. So we can know you correctly. So we can live correctly. So we can stand before you at death correctly. So Father, we just ask you to glorify yourself in us and our decisions and our movement in our worship, in our prayers, at this altar, in our giving, in our serving. Say, oh Lord, you are so good to us. We say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And all God's people said, amen.